Our scripture reading today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. This is the reading of God's word. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today we're continuing our series on the Emotionally Healthy Church. And just to recap, week one, we looked at the story of the woman at the well in John 4 to flesh out what it means to look beneath the surface, to ask the why questions, why we do what we do, why we lash out, why we're never satisfied with our job or our relationships, why we're always looking for the next best thing. And then last week, we looked at breaking the power of the past, identifying the ways our families of origin and our past experiences have shaped us and how God not only heals our past wounds, but redeems them for his glory. And today we're looking at the third principle of emotional health, which is living in brokenness and vulnerability. Put another way, it's being honest with ourselves and others about our weaknesses and our failures. Now this is obviously a tough one, I don't know anybody who likes to admit their weaknesses. This is why when you go to a job interview and they say, what are your strengths and weaknesses? Everyone knows. You never actually tell them what your weaknesses are. You don't say, huh, let me think about that for a moment. I'm unorganized, late all the time, and really bad with emails. No. You say things like, my biggest weakness is that I care too much. Or, you know what, I'm just a workaholic. I don't know how to take breaks. And we do this because we know weakness in our culture is looked down upon. Like we're okay with a little brokenness and vulnerability, but only to the extent that it makes us look authentic. Nobody actually wants to be known for being weak. Nobody wants to be known as the weak boss who can't handle the pressure of running a company. Nobody wants to be known as a weak parent. You want to be that mom of six who homeschools all her kids, who just finished her kitchen reno, who started a side business during quarantine and somehow still has the time and energy for yoga. We want to be her. You see, as a society, we idolize people who exude this kind of supernatural confidence and strength, who always look like they have it all together who can juggle a million different things effortlessly, people who are somehow thriving in the midst of a pandemic. Why do athletes like Michael Jordan carry an almost mythological status in our minds? It's because he seemed invincible. They said he had no weaknesses in his game. You know, I remember growing up watching those championship Bulls teams, and it didn't matter who was on the other team. It didn't matter if the Bulls were down by 20 going into the fourth quarter. As long as Jordan was on the court, you knew they were going to win. And I loved watching his post-game interviews when the reporter would ask him, Hey Michael, at any point did you think you were going to lose that game? And without hesitation, he'd say, nope. And I loved that because every time he said that, all of us were like, that's why he's the GOAT. He has no weaknesses. He's not scared of anything. 
You see, we live in a culture that trains us to avoid weakness at all costs, or at least fake it till you make it, right? Social media makes this very possible. We can curate picture-perfect lives that show the world just how strong we are, just how put together we are, just how easy and effortless life is for us. And then when the storms of life come, we put that pressure to be strong and perfect on our own shoulders. We say things like, I have to be strong for my parents. I have to be strong for my kids. I have to be strong for my spouse. And yet when you read through the Gospels, you see time and time again that Jesus talks about strength very differently. He often looks at the people we would consider weak and vulnerable and he says, be like that. In Mark 12, he looks at the poor widow who puts two copper coins in the offering basket and he says, be like that. In Matthew 18, when the disciples asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know what Jesus does? He doesn't bring over a CEO or a celebrity. He brings over a child. And he says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is it about little children that Jesus wants his disciples to see? Certainly it's not their innocence. I mean, I know my kids aren't innocent. They're monsters all the time. Certainly it's not their strength. And we know how fragile children are physically and emotionally. And what is it? What do children have that adults don't? It's that they have a keen awareness of their weakness and vulnerability. They tell us when they're scared. They tell us when they need something. Adults, we boast in our intelligence, in our self-sufficiency, in our ability. We try to be strong, but Jesus says, that's your problem. You don't understand your need. You know, when we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, on paper, he was what the world would define as strong. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul lists out his resume, and it's pretty impressive. Born into the best tribe of Israel, an expert of the law, he even says when it comes to the law, he was blameless. He had all the influence, all the prestige, all the accolades. And yet here in 2 Corinthians 12, we see a different man. He doesn't say what we think he'll say. He doesn't say, I will boast in my accomplishments or my pedigree. He doesn't talk about the fact that he's arguably the greatest missionary of all time who goes on to plant 21 churches in Asia Minor. No, he says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. The thing that I'm most proud of are my flaws and my failures. The thing that I'm most proud of is that I get anxious sometimes. The thing that I'm most proud of is that I fail as a dad a lot. What? That doesn't sound right. How can you boast in your weaknesses? I don't know anyone who on their social media profile lists everything wrong about their life. You would never do that. And yet this is what Paul is doing in our text today. And in fact, all throughout the New Testament, he regularly talks about how weak, broken, and fractured he is, not because he's proud of his sin in and of itself, but because he knows his fragility and brokenness points him to Jesus. And I want to unpack this idea today because I think it's one of the keys to emotional health. You know, so much of what we define as Christian maturity leaves out a willingness to fully embrace our brokenness as human beings. We think that following Jesus means we become less broken. No, following Jesus means we become more aware of just how broken we really are. And so if you're taking notes, my three points today are these. The pain of brokenness, 
the purpose of brokenness and the power of brokenness. The pain, the purpose, and the power. First, the pain of brokenness. Notice what Paul says in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So here Paul describes whatever it is he's experiencing as a thorn in his flesh. Now we don't know what this thorn was. Some scholars say it could have been a physical ailment, like a speech defect, an eye problem, maybe even epilepsy. Some scholars think he might have been referring to just the grind of ministry, of having people constantly opposing him and misunderstanding him. Some scholars think it could have been a sin issue Paul was dealing with, like anger or bitterness or jealousy. But I actually think it's better for us that we don't know exactly what this thorn was because it makes his pain universally applicable to us. You know, in the Bible, thorns generally denote sin, sorrow, hardship. If you remember back in Genesis 3, part of the curse was that the ground would yield thorns and thistles for humankind, meaning that as a result of the fall, pain and suffering and heartache would now be a part of our lives. Now notice the language Paul uses. Whatever this thorn is, we know it's extremely painful. Not only does he refer to the thorn as a messenger of Satan, but in verse 8 he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul's been asking God to remove this thorn from his life for a long time. And how many of us feel like Paul today? How many of us feel like we've been praying the same prayer for years? God, help me with my lust. Why is it that I can't control myself when it comes to pornography? God, help me with my anxiety. Why can I just be free of it? Why can I go one day without having a panic attack? God, help me with my sister. I can't stand her. I don't understand why she is the way she is. You see, all of us have thorns in our lives that torment and harass us, thorns we just wish God would remove altogether. Now, you know what's really interesting here? Is that Paul calls the thorn a messenger of Satan, but then pleads to God to take it away from him. Like he understands that even though God may not have caused his pain, that it's God who has the power to take it away. And you know what feels worse than having a thorn in your flesh? Believing in a God who you know can take away that thorn, but doesn't. You ever feel like that? You're like, God, I'm not upset because you can't heal my mom. I'm upset because you can heal her, but you won't. I'm not upset because you can't help me find a job. I'm upset because I know you can and you won't. And this is what Paul is saying here. He's overwhelmed by the pain of his brokenness. But actually, that pain is not the most shocking thing in this passage. The most shocking thing in this passage is Paul's willingness to be honest about it. Keep in mind that this is a letter Paul is writing to a church he planted. Like imagine you were writing an email update to a church you started. Most likely, you're not going to mention your marital issues. Most likely, you're probably not going to mention your chronic depression, your insecurities, your failure as a leader. No, you're going to talk about your successes. You're going to talk about how many people you brought to Jesus. You're going to talk about all the amazing things God is doing through your life and through your ministry. 
how many of us are so careful about what we post on social media because we want to make sure it conveys the things about us we want it to convey. But not Paul. He says, can I be honest with you guys? I'm actually not okay. And there are things I've asked God to help me with that he hasn't done anything about for years. Do you know how much courage it takes to do that? To not only experience the pain of brokenness, but to be able to share that pain with others? How is Paul able to do this? And it's because he understands his thorn has a purpose. Which brings us to the second point, the purpose of brokenness. Notice again what Paul says in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Meaning the very reason why this thorn has been given to me is to keep me humble. I love the message translation of this text. It says, I was given the gift of a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. And I don't know if you caught that, but he says, I was given the gift. In other words, the weakness itself was the gift. And that's so profound. To be able to say that the things you wish you could change about yourself, the things you wish you could change about your family, that these things have been given to you as a gift. You know, typically, when we hear preachers say things like, God has a purpose for everything, you know where our mind naturally goes? We automatically think that that means whatever we're going through right now is going to yield some reward at the end of it all. Like for those of you for whom the never-ending job search is your thorn, there's often a temptation to say the reason you're never satisfied with your job is because God is preparing the perfect job for you. For those of you for whom singleness is your thorn, there's a temptation to say that you haven't met the right guy. Why? Oh, because God is preparing the perfect guy for you. And so we tolerate the thorn in hopes that there's a gift waiting for us on the other side, not realizing that maybe the thorn itself is the gift. And you're thinking, wait, how can that possibly be true? How can my annoying boss possibly be a gift? Jason, how can you say this congenital disorder that will impact my child's life forever could possibly be a gift? That's offensive and unacceptable. And it's hard for Paul to stomach too. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And yet what he says next is so profound. He says, but God's grace is sufficient for me, for his power is made perfect in my weakness. Our brokenness, as painful as it is, is the only way that we realize God's grace is sufficient, that he's enough for us. Many of you know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata who became a quadriplegic in a diving accident at the age of 17. And in her book, A Place of Healing, she writes, God has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. My weakness, that is my quadriplegia, is my greatest asset because it forces me into the arms of Christ every single morning when I get up. How can this best-selling author, this world-renowned communicator, this successful CEO possibly say her best asset is her quadriplegia? It's because she understands what the Apostle Paul understands, that all weakness has a purpose. And that purpose is nothing more than for all of us to experience the sufficiency of God's grace. 
You know, when I think about the heroes of our faith, the one thing they all had in common was weakness. They were flawed people. They weren't people who had it all together. They weren't people who were impressive by the world's standards. Moses had a stutter. Timothy had a weak stomach. Jacob was a liar. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Sarah was too old for kids. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Naomi was a widow. Paul had a past, and yet God used them. There was a purpose for their brokenness. It's what Paul means when he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Which brings us to the final point, the power of brokenness. You know, we often think that the moment we start admitting our mistakes and speaking freely about our failures and our struggles, that somehow that makes us weaker. And yet Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I feel the weakest, when I feel utterly helpless and exposed, that's actually the moment that I possess the most power because Christ's strength is made perfect in my weakness. Scazzaro says true leadership is not always being the strong one. It's being the weak one who is made strong by God alone. In the famous story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, you know, everyone thinks David was this fearless, courageous kid who steps up to this giant and slays him. You know what's more likely? David was probably afraid. He was probably scared out of his mind. He knew he had no business on that battlefield. The armor didn't even fit him. But over and over again, David says, It is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. It's not David's intellect or his accuracy or skill or strength that won the battle. It was only when David embraced his weakness and inability that he was able to slay the giant. And we see this theme throughout David's life. If you look at the book of Psalms, David rarely sings about his victories or his successes. You know what he sings? A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am frail. Psalm 6. I am weak and poor, but you have not forgotten me. Psalm 40. Both King David and the Apostle Paul were so acquainted with their brokenness that they knew without a doubt that the source of their power was not in themselves. And knowing that was their greatest asset. In his book, Pete Scazzaro tells a famous story about a water carrier in India who placed a pole on his neck and attached two large pots on each side to carry the water. One of the pots had a huge crack in it. The other pot was perfect. The perfect pot always delivered the full portion of water, did what it was designed to do, while the cracked pot leaked half the water out every time. Well, one day the leaking pot is now feeling super insecure, ashamed that it can't do what it was made to do. So it goes up to the water carrier and says, look, I'm so sorry because I'm so broken. I've only been able to deliver half my water to your master's house. You're not getting the full value for your efforts. And the water carrier smiling says, hey, come with me. And he takes this broken pot back on the same path they've walked every day for the past few years. And he says, did you notice there are flowers only on your side of the path? It's because I've always known about your flaw and I took advantage of it. I planted seeds on your side of the path and every day, unbeknownst to you, you watered them. 
and for years I've been able to pick these flowers and decorate my master's table. You see, the things that make us feel weak are actually the very things that demonstrate God's power and His grace in our lives. You know, one thing pastors say all the time is that Jesus emptied himself of his power when he took on flesh and bone. But I actually don't think that's true. Yes, Jesus wasn't powerful in the way Rome defined power, by sword or by might, but he was definitely powerful. And the way he exercised that power was not in spite of brokenness, but through it. You know, no other ancient narrative has the God of the universe choosing to be vulnerable. No other ancient narrative has the God of the universe choosing to be born in a feeding trough. No other ancient narrative has the God of the universe choosing to be identified with the weakest, most broken people in society. But this is how Jesus came. He said, the way I'm going to be the Messiah, the way I'm going to save the world is not what you'd expect from a king. I'm not going to look like a conqueror on a chariot. I'm going to look like a criminal on a cross. And when the crowds looked up at Jesus, naked, beaten, bloodied, and alone, they said, surely this man can't be the Savior. But what they didn't realize was that Jesus was actually the most powerful in his most broken, vulnerable state. Friends, acknowledging our weakness can be terrifying, especially in a world where it seems like everyone around us is crushing it. In fact, sometimes acknowledging our weakness may even cause the world to shun or shame us. But I want you to remember this today. Because Christ was broken for us, we can be absolutely confident that no matter how broken we are or how broken we feel, the Father will never shun or shame us. The Father will always cover us. He will always clothe us and embrace us every time. You know, I think there's a huge misconception that maturing as a follower of Christ means you become less broken, that you make fewer mistakes, that you're less sinful, that you don't fail as much, that things just somehow get easier for you. But when you read scripture, that's not what we see at all. What we see is that maturity in the gospel is always accompanied by a greater awareness of our brokenness and sin. When I was 12, writing music in my bedroom, I thought all my songs were awesome. I wanted to play them for everyone. I thought I was an amazing songwriter. Well, I've now been playing and writing music for over two decades, and you know what the crazy thing is? I've never felt more inadequate as a musician than I do now. Am I objectively better than I was when I was 12? Probably. Do I feel like I'm better? Nope. Because the more you mature in anything, the more you become keenly aware of your deficiencies and your weaknesses. And we see this exact progression in the life of the Apostle Paul. And I never noticed this until I read Scazzaro's book. But in the book of Galatians, which is one of Paul's earliest letters, he's talking about the apostles, and you know what he says? He says, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Translation, I don't care who the apostles are. They got nothing on me. He actually sounds pretty defensive there. Well, fast forward six years later to AD 55, and this is what he writes in 1 Corinthians 15. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle. Just six years ago, he was saying, those apostles have nothing on me. And now he's saying, 
I'm not even worthy to be called one of them. Well, fast forward five more years when Paul writes the book of Ephesians, and you know what he says in chapter 3? He says, I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. He's not even comparing himself to other apostles now. He says, I'm less than the worst Christian out there. And then finally, two years before his death, after walking with Christ for 30 years, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.15, I am the worst of sinners. You see that progression? He went from, I don't care about those apostles. They make no difference to me. To, I'm the least of the apostles. To, I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. To, I am the worst of sinners. Is Paul becoming more sinful as he walks with Jesus? No, of course not. He's becoming more aware of his sin and his brokenness and his need for grace. Friends, this is what happens when we choose to live in brokenness and vulnerability. Not only do we see the utter depth of our sinfulness with greater clarity, but we also experience the healing power of God's love shown to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So today, let's embrace our weakness, knowing that it is the very means by which God demonstrates His power in and through our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are weak. And if we're honest, many of us aren't okay this morning. But we thank you that you don't need us to be okay to come to you. In fact, you welcome us as we are with all our blemishes and failures. May we embrace our weakness so that Christ may be magnified in and through us. We thank you, Jesus, for your love that knows no bounds. In your precious name we pray. Amen.